Well, if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn with me uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Once again, welcome. So glad that you're here with us. Over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be continuing in a series on the life of Peter. And many of you will know that Peter was one of Jesus's disciples and one of his closest friends. In fact, Peter is one of the more colorful characters that we meet on the pages of the New Testament. Our hope is that by getting to know Peter, by looking at his life every week and placing ourselves in his shoes, so to speak, we'll learn more about what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we'll learn more about what it looks like for Jesus to relate to us in all of our glory and in all of our brokenness. Last week, we saw Jesus ask Peter a question. He came up to Peter and Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was one of Peter's better moments, if you know anything about his life. Peter, at this point in his life, was basically looking at Jesus and saying, you're it. You're the one that we expect. You're the one that's going to come and say all things right. You're going to make all things right. Well, we've seen Peter slowly come to the realization that Jesus is the Christ. Peter's in process. He's in process. After witnessing Jesus up close for two years, Peter has come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah that his people had been waiting for all these years. And right on the heels of Peter confessing Jesus to be the Christ or the King, we continue following the life of Peter this morning, and we see that his moment of glory doesn't last long. We can relate, can't we? Oftentimes, our moments of glory don't last very long until we stick our foot in our mouth whether it be with one another or with God himself. Peter has correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, and now we're going to see Peter struggle to grasp what exactly Jesus came to do. To see what I mean, you follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he'll repay each person according to what he has done. Well, this is God's word. Let me pray for us before we consider it together. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your word and for the way that it reveals to us who you are and what you came to do. And we pray this morning that you would properly realign our expectations of who you are and what you have come to do. We pray that you would do this through your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I remember growing up 
And in my family, we would always listen to the same radio station in the car everywhere we went. It was FM 100 in Memphis, Tennessee. And it played lots of current hits. It played stuff that was popular at the time. And I remember every morning driving to school, listening to this radio station. And over the years, I felt like I'd gotten to know the radio personalities that hosted the morning show on FM 100 every morning. Uh, Having only heard their voices for years, uh, I developed a pretty clear picture in my mind of what they looked like. You likely have done this before on the radio before. Well, one day we were at an event in town And the radio personalities from FM 100 were at the event. After years of listening to them at the radio, they were there in live person. And I remember the shock it was to me to see them in person and realize they looked nothing like what I'd expected. The hair color was different. One guy was wearing glasses. They were shorter. They weren't wearing the kind of clothes I'd imagined. I had pretty clear expectations of what they'd looked like and the reality Uh, of what I saw was completely different. Look, this experience that I had uh, a few years ago, a few decades ago actually, is similar to what we see in our passage this morning. Remember last week, we saw the disciples correctly identify Jesus. They come to Jesus and Jesus asks him who they say he is. And Peter answers for the entire group. And he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And by identifying Jesus as the Christ, we spoke about this last week, they are saying that he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the king they've been waiting for. The king that's going to come and set all things right. Well, Peter says this, Jesus confirms their confession, and the disciples begin to get excited. They begin to get excited because they've got certain expectations for what's about to happen. They've got certain expectations for what the Christ is going to look like. They expect the Christ to come and to reestablish the physical kingdom of Israel. They expect him to come and wipe out the Roman occupiers, to set up a righteous government through power and through might. They expect that when the Christ comes, he's going to establish a kingdom that's going to be characterized by glory and honor and prestige. That's what the disciples expect to see. Jesus knows this. He knows their expectations. And so from this point in his ministry to the end, he spends a lot of time reorienting his disciples' expectations. He wants them to have proper expectations for what he came to do and for who he is, for what following him means. I wonder this morning what your expectations for Jesus are. If you were to stop and take stock of your life, if you were to stop and take stock of what it means to follow Jesus, I wonder how you would answer that question. What do you expect him to bring to your life? What do you expect him to give you? What do you expect him to do in your relationships, in your vocations, in your families? What do you expect of Jesus? Well, our passage is one that addresses this idea of expectations, and it's important as we seek to follow Jesus that we have proper expectations of what that looks like. Because without proper expectations, we might become disillusioned when following Jesus gets hard. We may become cynical when things don't work out the way we wish they had. We may be tempted to give up when other options seem much more comfortable and desirable than following Jesus if we don't have proper expectations. 
What do you expect of Jesus? Who is he and what does following him look like? Well, having proper expectations is important for both those that might be considering following Jesus for the first time this morning. And it's important for those of us who've been following Jesus for many years. Proper expectations. And this morning, I want to look at this passage under three headings. We see three different sets of expectations in this passage. One, we see Jesus' expectations. Second, we see Peter's expectations. And third, we see the disciples' expectations. First, let's look at Jesus' expectations with regard to what he came to do. We see in verse 21 that Jesus begins to reorient his disciples' expectations of what's about to happen. From this point on, Jesus begins teaching quite explicitly about what's going to happen to him, what's coming up in the near future. And this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry in lots of ways, where he begins his journey to Jerusalem. He's at the northernmost part of Israel, and he's making his way to Jerusalem, and it's going to be his last journey. He knows that his disciples have big expectations. After all, as they followed him, they've seen Jesus heal people. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. They've seen Jesus confound the religious leaders of the day. They have now correctly identified him as the Christ, and their expectations for glory and honor are slowly growing. Jesus knows this, so he comes and he begins to dramatically reorient their expectations. Jesus knows what to expect. We see his expectations in verse 21, where he begins to teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is amazing. Jesus tells his disciples point blank that they're about to walk straight into danger. Not maybe, but, but surely. We're heading this way and here's what's about to happen. He's trying to get his disciples to understand that they're going to Jerusalem not to ascend a throne, but they're going to Jerusalem to ascend a cross. And it would have completely blown every circuit in the disciples' minds at this point. He's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and we're not going to put up a fight. We're not going to put up a fight and be eventually defeated. No, we are going there and we're going to walk straight into suffering voluntarily. This expectation would have shocked his disciples. We know they have a hard time processing this idea because it seems like they don't understand what Jesus is saying if you continue reading the Gospels. Jesus considers this journey, as, as Jesus considers this journey towards suffering necessary, his disciples have no clue what he's talking about. I want you to notice in verse 21 that Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed. He must be raised. This idea of must is what some theologians call the divine necessity. The divine necessity. It was necessary for Jesus to suffer and to die. From the very beginning, it's why he came into this world. It was a must. Why was suffering and death for Jesus necessary? That's the question for us this morning. Why must he do this? Why did it have to happen? Well, there's at least three reasons why it was necessary for Jesus to suffer and die. First, it was a personal necessity, a personal necessity. Jesus was driven to suffer and die because of his deep love for us, for you and me. Look, if you were to flip back to the beginning of your Bible, you would read in Genesis chapter 126 that God created humanity in his image. 
And this means that we were made in the image of a communal loving God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from all eternity past had experienced perfect love and affection for one another in their community. And this is the love that God has always experienced and it's selfless and it's authentic and it's the kind of love that you were created to experience. In fact, lots of secular sociologists would argue that we need love to survive. It's almost like the air we breathe. We need love to flourish and to develop as people. It's noted in study after study of children who grow up emotionally or relationally stunted due to lack of love. If you're deprived of love, you can't flourish. If you're deprived of love as a young child, it's hard to develop. It's hard to grow. And it's because love is in our spiritual DNA. We were created to experience it. And in this world, we experience love in differing degrees, don't we? It's helpful to think of love in two general broad categories. False love and true love. Or fake love and authentic love. Because of our sin and our brokenness, it's normally some degree of this false love that you and I experience in life. Even from those who love us best. It's never as authentic as we would like. False love says, I'll give love to another person, but I'm doing it so that I can get a response. I'm loving for my own happiness. In other words, um, I will give you love, but I expect you to reciprocate. I expect you to return love to me. It's really a quid pro quo relationship. It's conditional. No matter how pure our motives are, this is the kind of love that we experience. It's never 100% vulnerable. It's never 100% unconditional. Nobody can give us the kind of love or the amount of love that we're starved for. What we need is someone to love us who doesn't need us. Someone to love us who doesn't need us. We need the kind of love that's authentic and unconditional. That's what we'll call true love this morning. And it's the love that we were created for. It's when someone loves us radically, unconditionally, vulnerably. We get it when someone loves us just for our sake and they don't expect anything in return. And this is the love God created us in. He's, he in no way needed us when he created us. But he decided to create us and to invite us to experience the love that he'd experienced from all eternity past. This is the kind of love that says, I'm selling out. And it's not based on how you respond. I'm just going to do it. Well, the problem with this kind of love is that we can't find it except in one place. And that's Jesus. He's the source of this kind of love. He's the one who loves us, but doesn't need us. Jesus doesn't need us, but he came and loved us anyway. Where else are you going to find a love that doesn't need you? Where else are you going to find someone who loves you just for your sake unconditionally? When you experience more and more of this kind of love that's on offer in Christ, it changes you. It gives you the security you can find nowhere else. It even frees you up to love more authentically yourself, to move out towards others in love and in affection. It's this kind of love that drove Jesus to the cross. Jesus must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must go to the cross because you and I needed loving. 
And he's the only one that can give us the true love that we were created for. Second, Jesus had to go to the cross because it was a legal necessity. The very nature of sin is rebellion against God. That's what sin is. It's a hatred of God and his desires for our life. In a very real sense, sin is an injustice that we've committed. Um, The choice we made to shove God away, the creature shoving the creator away. We want his gifts, but we don't want him. It's offensive. It's unjust. It requires forgiveness. And we see from the Bible that forgiveness is never cheap. We may think of it that way sometimes, like when we say, well, why can't you just forgive and forget, you know? Get on with life. Just forgive that person. But the Bible comes and tells us that forgiveness is never easy because forgiveness always requires a payment. Someone is always going to have to absorb the cost in order for forgiveness to be extended. Okay, think about it this way. We leave church this morning and we're in the parking lot and I accidentally back into your car and I smash your rear lights and I dent your bumper in. And uh, at this point in time in the parking lot, you've got a choice to make, a decision to make. You can exact payment from me. You can make me pay for the wrong that I've done or you can offer forgiveness. In which case you still got a dented in bumper and broken taillights. Someone's got to pay. It's either going to be you or it's going to be me. And if you want to offer me forgiveness, that means that you've got to absorb the cost that I just created. And the bigger the offense, the more the cost uh, it is to offer forgiveness because the bigger uh, the cost that needs to be absorbed. So why does Jesus have to suffer and go to the cross? Because when forgiveness is required, someone's got to pay. It's either going to be you or it's going to be him. It's either you're, you, you that is damned or it's Jesus that is damned. So Jesus has to go to the cross because justice required it if forgiveness was going to be extended. And third, Jesus has to go to the cross because it was a cosmic necessity. This is interesting. Jesus doesn't just go to the cross to offer us forgiveness. He goes to the cross as a victor, as a triumphant victor. He goes as one who is going to overthrow the spiritual forces of darkness and death itself. Ever since Genesis 3, when humanity plunged the world into sin, the whole world has been affected by the fall and it needs to be healed. And we experience sin and brokenness at a systemic level because of sin. It's in the systems that we traffic in. This is pictured for us by the fact that the very people who should have been standing up for justice in this passage, the Jewish leaders in the model of justice in that day and age, the Roman government are the very ones that conspire in order to condemn Jesus to death. These are the corrupt systems of the world that are coming together to condemn a just man. These corrupt systems put Jesus to death and the spiritual forces of darkness at that time thought that they were winning a cosmic battle. They thought it was over. But by submitting to death as a penalty, Jesus won through losing. He turned the world's authority and power upside down. And by rising from the dead, he vanquished our greatest enemy, death itself. We no longer have to fear. We no longer have to worry. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die because by doing so, he vanquishes death and the spiritual forces of darkness. He's setting this world back right again. 
Jesus comes to break the bondage of sin and to set the prisoner free. And he does it not by taking power, but by coming a prisoner himself. Jesus comes to take back what is rightfully his by going to the cross. Who ever heard of a God like this? No wonder the disciples were so baffled. I mean, who ever heard of a king going to a cross? It's almost too much to comprehend, and it's definitely too much to comprehend for Peter, who had different expectations for Jesus and his mission. It's important to understand that Peter had none of these theological categories that we just talked about, by the way. Um, uh, He uh, was still in process. He had not seen Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. He still had more learning to do as he followed Jesus and learned about his mission in this world. But Peter's not stupid either. Okay, Peter knows that what happens to Jesus is going to happen to him because he saddled up right beside him. He knows that if Jesus is going to suffer, that means that he's going to suffer. And Peter's expectations in no way included suffering. From a young age, Peter would have been uh, very specific about what he expected from this Messiah. Like I said, he expected the Messiah to be a military leader. He expected someone who would come and conquer the Romans, someone who would kick out all the foreign occupiers and rule in power. He expected a military man, a political leader. He expected to dominate. That's what Peter expected. He expected prestige and honor. He expected the Messiah to rule the world and he expected to be right at his side as he did it. Peter was beginning beginning to believe that he picked the right man. He's gonna be in Jesus's cabinet, that he was in line for glory and honor and power. Peter is controlled by thinking, what's in it for me? But what Jesus begins teaching confuses Peter a bit because suffering and death aren't part of his plan. So upon hearing the expectations of Jesus, Peter pulls Jesus aside and gives him some unsolicited pastoral advice. Peter's maybe feeling pretty good about himself after having just been called the rock of the church. You know, maybe his head is a little puffed up a little. So he pulls Christ aside and in verse 22, we see Peter begin to rebuke Jesus for these expectations. It would have been unheard of, by the way, in that day and age for a master-disciple relationship for the disciple to correct the master, let alone rebuke him. And the word rebuke is a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament for how Jesus addresses demons. Okay, so Peter is reprimanding Jesus here. He's getting out in front of him. He's trying to force Jesus to fit in with his expectations And Peter says in verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In other words, Peter's trying to convince Jesus that he doesn't need to move towards suffering and death, okay? Put this away in your mind for a minute. Peter is trying to convince Jesus that he doesn't need to move towards suffering and death. He should be heading toward power and glory. And if you stop and think about it, Jesus has heard these kind of persuasive words before, hasn't he? Remember back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he spends 40 days in the desert being tempted by Satan. And in the desert, Satan was trying to get Jesus to abandon his mission at the very beginning. Satan tried to convince Jesus that he could avoid suffering. Satan, back in the desert, tried to convince Jesus that he could have glory through power. And if he did that, then that means the healing and the hope for the whole world would have been demolished. It would have been gone. 
And here's Peter replicating Satan's temptations in a way. Jesus has heard these lies before. He knows their author. And so Jesus turns and he responds by saying, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus calls Peter back to his proper place behind Jesus as a follower. Look in this passage, Peter has set his mind on things of man. Things like power and happiness and comfort and prestige. He wants to follow Jesus straight to glory. And we can't be too hard on him, can we? Because in a lot of ways, we see ourselves in Peter. We want the same things that he wants. I like how Ken Geyer put it in his book, Seeing What is Sacred. Uh, The quote is printed for you at the very beginning of your bulletin. He says this, I want to be like Christ, but honestly, I want to be like the Christ who turned water into wine, not the Christ who thirsted on the cross. I want to be the clothed Christ, not the one whose garment was stripped and gambled away. I want to be the Christ who fed the 5,000, not the one who hungered for 40 days in the wilderness. I want to be the free Christ, walking through wheat fields with his disciples, not the imprisoned Christ who was deserted by them. This is the dark side of Christianity, he continues. The side we don't see when we sign up. That if we want to be like Christ, we have to embrace both sides of his life. What else could it mean when the Bible talks about the fellowship of his suffering? How could we enter that fellowship apart from suffering? How could we truly know the man of sorrows acquainted with grief if we had not ourselves known grief and sorrow? Look, Peter, along with you and I, need a reorientation of what it means to follow Jesus. Because we have oftentimes set our minds on what's in it for us. We've set our minds on the things of man. But Jesus wants us to refocus on the things of God, on what's important to him. And this is what Jesus moves to next. Having called Peter back to his proper place as a follower, as a disciple, Jesus turns to the rest of his disciples, the rest of the group that's following him, and he expands on what it means to follow him. He's making sure that the disciples have proper expectations in place. In verse 24, Jesus begins teaching his disciples what it looks like to follow him. He wants to remind his followers that discipleship is not easy. In fact, he's inviting his followers to come and lose alongside of him. He's telling these disciples that the seal of God on your life, how you can know God has shown up, is not success, but suffering. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, he says, you should expect to deny yourself and to take up your cross. As a disciple of Jesus, we're called to deny ourselves. But this is really hard for you and me. It's hard for you and me because a lot of times we're trying to please ourselves. We spend a lot of time and energy and money uh, trying to create opportunities, trying to maintain the picture of the good life that we've painted for ourselves. We want good reputations. We want comfort. We want control. We want money. We want health. And oftentimes you and I are guilty of using Jesus to get these things, using the creator to get his gifts. But often these are the very things that are keeping us from following Christ, keeping us from actually moving towards him in a real way. So Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to turn our back on those things, although they're good, to choose something better, to choose him. 
so that we might choose a path that leads to life and flourishing. Secondly, as disciples of Jesus, we see Christ call us to take up our cross. And the disciples, upon hearing this, would have known exactly what this meant to take up a cross. They'd seen it happen before. In that culture, the cross was a tool used for execution, you know. Um, What we wear now around our necks was at one point a symbol of death. Cross-bearing would have been uh, signified, it would have signified submitting to another authority in an ultimate sense. You're walking to your death. In most cases, submitting to the Roman government, your life is over. It's, it's gone. Your independent life is, is over forever from here on out. And Jesus is saying, as you take up my cross, you're submitting to me. Your life is over. Jesus was trying to get his followers to understand what following him means. It means the way of suffering, the way of service, the way of death. Doesn't it sound interesting? You want to sign up? Um. Leads to the question, why in the world would anyone want to follow Jesus? Why would you want to do this? It doesn't sound like an appealing proposition. If I were a travel agent this morning, most of you would leave and not, you know, sign up for the trip. So why would we want to do this? Well, Jesus answers that question for us in verses 25, 26, and 27. He tells us that following him is the way to life. It's the way to truly be human. It's the way to experience the paradise that Jesus offers us ultimately. It's the way that this world is going to be healed and restored. Only as we follow Jesus. It's our only hope. For you personally, it is your only hope to follow Jesus. And for the world at large, it's their only hope that we follow Jesus. And love and serve them like we've been loved and served by him. In other words, you can continue to follow your vision of the good life. You can continue to pursue power and prestige and glory. You can continue to pursue wealth and success. But eventually, you're going to do that to your own peril. If you follow that path, it will eventually lead to death and the loss of your very soul. Follow yourself and you'll lose yourself. You'll lose your soul or follow Jesus and his path and you'll experience life. You'll experience your true self. Jesus is saying, if you try to save your life, if you grasp and claw at your picture of the good life, if you try harder and harder to attain it, guess what? You're going to ultimately lose. But if you're willing to lay down that picture of the good life that you've created, and even allow Jesus to paint that picture for you, then you're going to find life. You're going to find flourishing. Jesus here is talking in ultimate terms. It's important to understand that. Notice he's speaking in the future tense. This life that Jesus promises can truly be tasted now. We can truly taste the goodness that Jesus wants to bring us, but it's ultimately going to be experienced in the future judgment. When God fully sets the world right, it's then that we'll know and experience the full benefits and blessings of following the way of Christ. Look, we follow one who gave up everything for us. And he did it willingly. He didn't do it grudgingly. He didn't look at you and say, I can't believe I got to do this. He went to Jerusalem 
to suffer and to die and be raised again on his own volition because he loves you and he loves this world. Because he wants to bring renewal and restoration to you and to this world. Jesus is the king who moves towards suffering and death so that he might bring life. No other religion makes this claim. No other God offers this to you. Only the God of the Bible. Jesus knew his mission all along and he was committed to it. He could even read about his mission in the Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, his Bible. It's pretty interesting to think about the fact that Jesus had his playbook. The disciples didn't understand it. They would have read Isaiah 53 like we heard this morning and it would have just gone right over their heads. But Jesus knew that that passage was talking about him as he read it. His journey was already mapped out. Even before he came on the scene, he knew what he was called to do. The prophet Isaiah paints that picture for us 700 years before Jesus started life. And we get a taste of that mission in Isaiah 53, which was read for us this morning. It says, he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we were healed." Look, Jesus came to suffer for you and me, and through that suffering, he brought life. And he's calling us to the same path. As we move out, we offer life to others as we walk the same path that Jesus walked. And it feels like death. Oftentimes, it's going to feel like suffering. And I love how the artist Mako Fujimura put it when he likened this call of a disciple to his garden. The quote's for you in the beginning of your bulletin. He says this, Soil is made up of layers and layers of death. And out of this difficult, hardened reality comes up life. Look, you and I are going to be called to death. We're going to be called to suffer as we follow Jesus. There's going to be many hard days likely. But out of this hardened reality of death and suffering, Jesus wants to bring life. He wants to bring life to you. He wants to bring life to those that you know. Jesus' entire mission on earth culminated in suffering and death. And out of this death comes up life for you and for me and for the entire world. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you are a suffering servant. That you are one who came to give your life so that we might be brought back into relationship with you, so that we might experience your goodness and your grace, so that we might be set out on a mission to bring that type of life and that type of flourishing that you want to see this world partake of. We pray this morning that you would use us in that way, that you would use us for that mission as we seek to follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.